0: Chapter one, are you ready for a change? Now, I was asked to describe why somebody most likely purchased this book. You've been setting money aside for many years now. You max out your 401k and or your IRA. And if you're self-employed, your CPA or accountant likely suggests you max out your SEP IRA. You own your home and you may even be trying to pay it off early by accelerating your mortgage. You likely make too much income to qualify to do a Roth IRA. You've wondered if you'll outlive your money, if you have enough. You've been told that all you have to do is save as much as possible. On paper, you're doing well, but something seems to be missing. You're successful, maybe even consider yourself uncommon as you look across the landscape of your community or the country, but you definitely wouldn't call yourself rich. You wanna have control, but you have no idea how much the IRS will actually take or how much you'll be able to have in retirement. You have kids and college is right around the corner and you wonder exactly how much it's going to cost you. Or maybe you recently paid for college and now the focus is on your future. You've been told that as long as you keep your money in the market, everything will be okay, but you hate seeing the losses. When you're asked to do something different, it makes you feel uncomfortable and you often retreat back to what you know. I created this book for people who believe the IRS tries real hard to take the fun out of being successful. Also for folks that have positive cash flow. People that if given a choice would choose to control how much of their retirement assets get shared with the IRS. Like a pie. If you got to choose how big of a slice they get, you want to be the one in control of that. Also business owners who continue to fund a SEP IRA year after year. W-2 employees who feel that maximizing their 401k means putting as much as they can into it each year. Folks who believe they should get all of their social security, since that's what was promised to them. I mean, if you could get it, would you take it all? People who have a desire to leave a legacy for their family, big or small. People who are tired of riding the roller coaster or Wall Street and realize there has to be a better way. And this one's very important. Individuals who are willing to learn and discover new things. I've been in the financial services my entire career. I've seen the results over and over again of retirement accounts being decimated by losses, fees, and taxes. I've been directly involved in building two nationally ranked brokerages. I've trained and developed dozens of financial professionals. I created a training system for my industry which had me traveling around the country speaking at many events. My client process used to require between five to eight in-person meetings. It made it very challenging, to be honest. I was great at what I did, but I started to realize that our industry was changing. The way people consume information was changing. The internet changed everything. This meant that I could take my discussions and teachings online. I was one of the first to make this transition. As a matter of fact, in the beginning, I was kind of mocked, right? I was laughed at a little bit because I was using this new thing called YouTube. Now fast forward to today, and I work almost exclusively with people over the internet and have consolidated my process to be easily consumable without requiring face-to-face meetings, which saves time, many hours actually, and a lot of money. And it worked. So good that I'm now being copied by a lot of those people that used to kind of laugh. I'd ask that you take a few moments to dig in and see if what I created can help you too. You can follow me, I'm on almost everything social media, and see that I'm real, that I'm a family guy, that I goof off with my kids, I take my profession seriously, and I love what I do. Hopefully, I can engage with you on all those different tools. I'm going to tell three stories. The first is a client of mine that owns a very good-sized liquor store. The retail space next to him became available and he wanted to buy it so he could expand his space. Now, if he followed traditional advice and wanted to use his capital to buy this location next door, his capital would have been tied up in four different places. Number one, his SEP IRA. If he chose to use the funds in his SEP IRA to try to help him buy this place, he would have penalties, he would have taxes, He would have all the government rules, which would make it very difficult if they'd even allow him to use those funds. Number two, a brokerage account. This would be a liquid account with other investments. He'd have to deplete that account and lose the opportunity to earn interest on those monies if he depleted them. Plus his advisor would probably be against it because that would be removing money that is under the management of that advisor and they don't certainly like to see money leaving their account totals. The third option would be in in his home, in his house. But to access the equity, if he chose to do so, he'd have to go get a new mortgage loan. And number four would be simply his bank account. But he'd have to deplete that account as well, which could potentially put him in a liquidity issue if something happened to his liquor store that could impact his ability with his liquid money. He could always go to the bank and attempt a commercial loan, However, he was able to leverage his own money, create some arbitrage with those funds by lending against it without losing the opportunity to earn interest, and he had the cash to buy that place within five days. He had the liquidity, use, and control of his capital to do what he needed to do in order to advance his business. So when he heard that his neighbor was considering selling, He negotiated a deal, had the money in five days, and had leveraged his money to make it happen. Story number two, another client was 28 years old when he started with me. He was a very successful medical sales representative. He chose not to direct so much of his cash flow into his 401k like what everybody was telling him to do. A few years later, his good friend wanted to buy a brand new BMW. Now this friend of his was a young doctor who had a bunch of student debt. And because of this debt, and because of the large home he bought when he got his first job, he couldn't qualify with a bank for this new BMW. However, he had the ability to afford the payment, he just couldn't do it on paper. Now while having a beer with my client, my client had an idea. He said to himself, well now wait a minute, I have the capital that I can leverage and create an arbitrage with. So he told his friend, he goes, I'll be your bank, I could have the check for you within the week. I'll charge you 8% and you could be driving that car next weekend. His friend looked in shock knowing he doesn't make as much money as he does. He's like, what? He said, don't worry about it. I've got the capital I can leverage and I can have it in five days. I know who you are and you'll pay me, but I'm going to charge you 8%. His friend accepted the deal. So my client leveraged his own funds, which allowed him to still earn interest on those funds while also earning the 8% from his buddy. He couldn't do that with his 401k. He really couldn't do that with his other investments. Story number three is that of another client whose first kiddo was going to college. Now, he had planned and prepared for this day, but he planned and prepared in a different way than most. The summer before his kid was going to school, he leveraged his funds to buy a property off campus for his daughter to live in and have some of her friends live there. Now he paid cash for the house, which meant he did not have a bank mortgage loan against it. He had a loan against his funds, but since those funds were the collateral, he had no monthly payment on that either. Now his daughter's friends who also lived in that house paid rent. Now without a a payment on the funds he leveraged, without a mortgage payment on the home, he used the rent money to pay for his daughter's college expenses, tuition, everything. His second daughter went to the same school and they did the same thing. After she was done, he sold the property, paid off the loan that was against his funds. Remember that loan that was against his collateral? But his funds never stopped earning interest that entire time. Because he created an arbitrage, he was able to use the rent money to pay for college. So then I have to ask the question, how much did college truly cost him? Almost nothing. You see, he got a loan against his capital, used those proceeds to buy the house, no mortgage payment on it, used the rent from his daughter's friends to pay for their college, and then when they were done, sold the home to pay off the loan against his collateral. It was brilliant. Now these stories were possible because these individuals decided to take control. And the only way they could have done this is by taking that one step to be in control of their capital. I want to start with the history of this idea. I've had this in my head for around four years now, and I just haven't taken the time to properly put it together in between other projects. I'm sure that's something you can relate to. However, it's time to get it done. I have found that many people are seeking knowledge and wisdom financially in this turbulent world we find ourselves today, and maybe like so many others, You're more interested in what various financial products can actually do for you and you care less about what the products are called. I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? Who cares what it is? What's more important is what it does for us. Unfortunately, the financial services industry places more focus on what they are, on what they're called, and works very hard to sell you whatever products they're promoting. Is it working? Are the masses doing better? I think the evidence points to the contrary. Rather than pimping out financial products to people, wouldn't it be nice if the financial industry focused more on achieving peace of mind, security, independence, love, freedom from fear, as well as knowledge and wisdom? To add to the confusion, you now have access to so much information right at your fingertips that it can be overwhelming, I mean, even exhausting. Like others, you may fear making mistakes because you didn't review all the information you have access to. Studies have found that people are dismayed by the lack of time to research before making the many important decisions pertaining to their financial futures. So instead of risking doing something wrong, they often do nothing. People are paralyzed. Which means they keep doing the same thing over and over while expecting a different result. And I know you've heard that before. Einstein addressed this and called it the definition of insanity. I saw a really simple study that showed if you're an average adult, and the way they defined that was, you know, your marriage, you have kids, your full-time job, you have a house, etc. And they found you have approximately 10 hours per week where you really don't have anything going on and you choose maybe to sit down and watch TV. Have you found that you just don't use those 10 hours researching your financial future? I mean, even if you did, would you feel sure about it? Wouldn't you rather work with someone who can help to filter the information you need so that you can get excited and feel confident about the choices you're making? That's why I finally sat down to finish this project, because I believe successful people like yourself deserve the opportunity to learn how to maintain control of your money every step along the way so that the IRS, the state governments, hospitals, nursing homes, and the banks don't get most of your hard-earned assets. Basically, securing your financial future regardless of market performance, regardless of how long you live, and regardless of the tax man. I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions because I believe financial professionals need to stop giving their opinion. The only opinion that matters is yours. The only way to discover what your opinion is is to ask you questions. I know you're not stupid, but you might be overwhelmed, afraid, uncertain, busy, and maybe even exhausted. You might be finding it difficult to create the energy to plan and prepare and protect yourself from the oncoming crisis, which, boy, I'll discuss a little later. So by asking you questions, we can find the opportunity for success rather than failure and a future filled with certainty rather than uncertainty. Let's start with a few questions to get your mind thinking. You ready? What if you could prevent income taxes on your future retirement income? Would that be of interest to you? If there was a way to stay in complete control of your money until you took your last breath, but instead of giving your money to the government, a nursing home, or a hospital, you could keep that money in your family for generations to come, at the very least. Wouldn't that be worth your time if all I did was ask you questions that could help you clarify in your own mind how to do that? What if you could prevent being harmed by volatility and maybe even take advantage of volatility? Wouldn't that be an amazing benefit for your life? What if you live too long? What if you outlive your money and or your income? What kind of life would you have? Who would you have to depend on? Are they there for you? What if it never matters again what the government does or how the economy performs or what occurs in the world because you designed a strategy that would succeed no matter what happened? Wouldn't that be worth finding out? Did you know studies reveal that Human beings will do almost anything not to have uncertainty. Would you believe they would even be willing to listen to or read a financial book (laughs) if it could eliminate uncertainty? Did you know the American people are being called upon at this current moment in time to tolerate uncertainty at the highest level ever seen in our country's history? If we could reduce or eliminate that uncertainty so you could be more in control rather than being controlled, couldn't you find an hour to dig in and learn how? After all, uncertainty causes financial disasters. It also causes emotional, physical, intellectual, and even spiritual disasters. And what's so hard to witness is the fact that it's totally unnecessary. So, I have some goals for you with this audiobook. I'm going to show you how you can double your spendable income in retirement using the same cash flow you have today to build your retirement savings. I'm gonna show you how you can obtain a tax-exempt retirement regardless of your income level and regardless of the state you reside in. I will also show how you can contribute as much post-tax money as you want beginning today, even if you're disqualified for a Roth. I'm going to decrease the exposure your assets have to lawsuit and litigation immediately. I'm gonna show exactly how you can create opportunities for arbitrage to get unlimited rates of return instead of relying on the market. I'll show you how to maintain control of your assets every step of the way so that the nursing homes, banks, and the government don't decimate your savings. I'm also gonna decrease the impact of any future tax increases. I'll also show you how to go from having very little control over the taxation, the rules, the penalties, and the income when it comes time to using and accessing your assets, both current and future assets, to turning what you're already doing into a powerhouse of control and leverage. This ultimately can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars, which means you get to spend it and use it instead of losing it. And finally, even if you pass away, I'll show you how your plan can continue on. So as you can tell here, I'm all about outcomes and getting you results. And that's what this audiobook is all about. I know without any doubt that this information will change you and your family's lives forever. I find that people wait until the last minute to make financial decisions, and more often than not, they make a mistake. By sharing this information, I am positive it will change you and your family's lives forever. And when we're finished, you will know something that I believe 95% of people in America don't know. I am so confident in this book i'll make that claim once more i know without any doubt that this information will change you and your family's lives forever regardless of your income level and regardless of the state in which you reside next up we're going to dive into chapter two and talk about the necessary mindset required to make this happen so let's get started chapter two in this book I'm going to show you how to go from having very little control over the taxation, the rules, the penalties, and the income when it comes to using and accessing your assets, both current and future assets, to turning what you're already doing into a powerhouse of control and leverage. This ultimately can save you hundreds of thousands of dollars, which means you get to spend it and use it instead of losing it. There's potential that this is going to be uncomfortable at first. But primarily what I ask is that you be coachable. As I mentioned before, nobody likes the know-it-all and it certainly doesn't help here. So be willing to admit you may have gotten some things wrong. It's important to understand though, to benefit from this book, it is not a requirement that you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars already. What you do need is the mindset that desires success. If you want to succeed as much as you want to breathe, then we'll get along just fine. Again, I believe the IRS tries real hard to take the fun out of being successful. If you believe that our government should be able to take as much of your money as they want or need, then you can stop listening or reading right now. The work you put into this one time will change your life and your family's life forever. We're going to discuss and build a simple, not easy, but simple plan. And you'll need to have these five things. Number one, a job, either self-employed or employed. Number two is a part of number one, I guess, because you certainly can be retired, but you need to have retirement income. Number three, positive cash flow. Number four, current liquid assets. And number five, retirement accounts. Believe it or not, Even though these haven't been taxed yet, these can, in some cases, offset some future tax burdens and can be an excellent component to designing what we're gonna go through. In chapter three, it's what I call the income game, understanding if you're common or uncommon. Boy, that one's gonna surprise you. In chapter four, the financial pie. I referenced it before. If given a choice, how much would you want to share with the IRS if it were up to you. In chapter five, climbing a mountain, the three phases. These phases represent our financial journey from start to finish. In chapter six, understanding the three types of money. In chapter seven, covers debt, that four letter word and how it relates to your 401k. In chapter eight, how much will you share with the IRS? And I call this one bucket number one. In chapter nine, how much will you share from bucket number two? In chapter 10, how much will you share from bucket number three? In chapter 11, how much will you share from bucket number four? In chapter 12, the 10 minute lesson, how to tie those four buckets together. In chapter 13, it's titled the debtor, the saver and the wealth creator. Chapter 14, Leveraging your assets for cash flow instead of depleting. And then finally, the appendix. Chapter three, the income game. Understanding if you're common or uncommon. This is one of my favorite conversations, and it's why I'm starting with it. Let's see where you're sitting in comparison to the rest of the country. More importantly, let's see if where you think you're sitting is actually where you are sitting. If I were to ask you, is your income common or uncommon compared to all the households that file a tax return, what would be your answer? Truly, please don't read or listen any further until you think about this question and have an answer. How do you compare as you look across the landscape of the country? Now that you've compared yourself, answer this one. But first, it's very important that you do not use Google for this. We need to see where you think you fit on this spectrum. You can Google afterwards and verify the information if you choose. You ready? According to the IRS, what do you believe to be the adjusted gross income a household has to show in order to be in the top 50% of wage earners? Take a guess. So to be in the top 50% means you are sitting smack dab in the middle of the bell curve. How much annual income does it take to be right in the middle of that curve? Don't move forward until you have a figure in your head. I'll wait. All right, now, how about the top 25%? So this means 75% of everyone who files a tax return, actually every household, not just every individual, every household. So if 75% of every household that files an income tax return makes less than you if you're in the top 25%, how much income does it take to hit this threshold? you got to have a number in your head. Maybe even write them down so you remember. the Top 50, the top 25. Let's move on. What about the top 10%? 90% of people are behind you. Are you making a million, two million, only 50,000? What do you think? What's the number? What's your guess to be in the top 10% in the country? Now we're almost done. Only two left. How about the top 5%? 95% 95% of everybody else, every household that files a tax run is behind you. You're killing it. Now, let's do the infamous one percenters, right? How much does it take to officially be in the top 1% of income earners in the United States? I mean, in a recent political election, one candidate referred to the top 1% as the corporate jet owners and flyers, right? Basically, the uber rich is how he referred to it. So what do you think it is to be in the top 1%? Now that you've assigned a number in your head for each of these qualifiers, let's see how accurate you were with your guesses. All right, so here's how it breaks down. What was your number for the top 50? According to the IRS, the most recent data that they've published, to be in the top 50%, you only need to make $41,740 per year. Did that match yours? I often find that people get this one pretty close. They will also often get the next one pretty close. To be in the top 25%, you need to be making $83,682 per year as an adjusted gross income. But these next three are where we almost always see a big separation. It's very rarely that people start to get these accurately. To be in the top 10%, again, according to the IRS, you can Google this, $145,135 per year qualifies you to be in the top 10. Now, the top five, $208,053 to be in the top 5%. And the infamous 1%ers, these people are certainly not the corporate jet owners and flyers. It only takes $515,371 per year, and you qualify to be in the top 1% in the country. Now, the majority of people I work with are in the top 10%. So I'm going to assume that you are as well. All it takes is about $145,000 a year, and you're in the top 10% in the entire country. Is that close to what you guessed? Did you by chance say something like $3 million a year, like a recent, very successful realtor that I talked to the other day? For the top 10%, she predicted $3 million. She was convinced you had to be well into the millions to be in the top 10% level and above. So think about the people that are making 145 grand a year of income. They're paying their bills, trying to save money. They're doing all the things that everybody else is doing and they don't feel like they're getting ahead. In fact, a lot of times they look at their friends and their neighbors and they think, gosh, they seem to be doing a lot better than me, a lot better than us. Is this you? The truth is, if this is you, if you are in the top 10 and above, you are not common at all. You make more money than 90% of Americans. That is definitely not a common position. This of course leads me to a few questions. When it comes to financial planning, should you then be using common strategies or uncommon strategies? Should you be doing the same common things that everybody else is doing to get ahead? Or do you think perhaps maybe you should start to look at money with an uncommon approach? What I'm trying to help you understand is that your income is not common by any means. Now let's take this to the next conversation as it relates to taxation. We need to know who pays the taxes in this country. And here's the crazy part. How much of the overall federal tax bill do each of these thresholds pay? This one's really interesting to me. So the top 50% pay 96.89% of all income taxes. This means that the bottom 50% are only responsible for 3.11% of all income taxes collected by our government. The top 25% pay 86.1% of all income taxes. The bottom 75% of taxpayers only pay 14.03% of the entire federal tax burden. The top 10% are responsible for 70.08% of all income taxes. The top 5% pay 59.14%. 5% of our taxpayers pay over half the entire income tax collected. That's unbelievable. And the top 1% pay 38.47% They are responsible for almost 40% of the income taxes. Isn't that amazing? One thing for sure, I believe it's very fair to say, that there is a limited pool of people for the government to increase taxes on. I mean, would you agree? Who will be responsible to pay for the future tax burdens our country is facing? Do you think it'll be those who are common or those who are uncommon? How does that make you feel? Think of this as well. The IRS data also tells us that 82.34% of the people make less than $75,000 per year. 82%. Think about that for a minute. With all the enormous issues we have with an aging baby boomer population, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, pensions, interest on debt, all this COVID bailout that we're having to do, this list gets real long, really fast. How in the heck can our government get what it needs from those earning less than $75,000? They can't. You are the biggest tax target for our government. You are the household that has the money to be taxed. You are the uncommon. If this is true for you, then why in the hell are you following common advice? Why is virtually everyone given the exact same financial plan? Everybody is told, max out your 401k, contribute to a Roth if you qualify, pay down your house, keep your other investments in the market because you don't want to take it out when it's high because it's doing great, and you don't want to take it out when it's low because you lock in your losses, pay cash for college if you can, pay cash for cars if you can, blah, blah, blah. A brand new employee, fresh out of college, is getting the exact same advice as the 45 year old employee who's making over $250,000 a year at that same company. The final question in this chapter. Remember earlier, one of the requirements I said is you need to be coachable. You need to be willing to learn something new and take action. So here's this final question. Now that you know where you're sitting, Are you willing to learn uncommon strategies that help you protect yourself and your family from the future tax harvesting that is surely awaiting you? If so, then let's keep going. Chapter 4, The Financial Pie, How Much Do You Want to Share? This just gets better and better as we dig in. I have a simple illustration to help us define and discover something you want. It's really easy. How much do you want to share with the IRS? Now, that seems... Potentially like a stupid question, but let's take a look Pretend for a moment that I draw a simple circle which represents a financial pie This pie is 100% of all of your wealth both current and future wealth Now if I took a knife and I started in the middle of the pie and made the first cut to the edge and then I handed you the knife and asked that you make the second cut which would represent how much of this wealth you want to share with the IRS, how big, and this part's key, if it were up to you, how big would you make that slice? Now, if you're still with me, then I'm pretty confident I know how you answered. You said something like, I wouldn't give them beep. I wouldn't give them crap. I wouldn't give them anything. I'd put the knife down, Kelly. I've heard that. I'd give you the knife back, sir. Now, this is very important because I also believe you deserve the opportunity to get what you just stated you wanted. I mean, after all, if if it were up to you, you would want all of your money exempt from the IRS. You just made that claim. Me too. Now, I've had the privilege of speaking in front of many groups, and I've asked so many times for a show of hands for those people who think taxes are going up. The room is typically full of hands in the air. I then ask, keep your hands up, that if given a choice, you'd be willing to let the government carve out as much as they want from your financial pie. All hands go down. Everyone, every time I've been in a room, big or small, and asked those two questions. This is virtually the universal response. Now, getting back to the last chapter about being common or uncommon, please tell me how the traditional plan Your traditional financial plan accommodates this for those who are, in fact, uncommon. It reminds me of the purpose of a bomb shelter and a tornado shelter. A bomb shelter has one single purpose, to protect you from bombs. People in Tornado Alley run to their tornado shelters when the sirens go off with one expectation, that their shelter will protect them from the tornado. So please answer me this. How in the world does it pass financial compliance standards to refer to a 401k or an IRA as tax shelters? The very last thing they protect you from is taxation. Earlier I referenced an appendix to where I have some other ebooks for you. Make sure to check out my ebook, the IRA versus the Roth IRA, Brother A versus Brother B. You'll be quite shocked to learn the mathematical reason the government prefers one over the other. So let's get back to your financial pie. If the current tax code allows you to control the knife, would you do it? I mean, truly, I want to ask that one again. If the current tax code allows you to put the knife down and control the slice, would you do it? I'm serious. It comes down to whether or not you want it. You definitely don't need it. For me, I want my pie and I want control of the knife. I'm assuming you're the same. Let's keep going. Chapter five, climbing a mountain, the three phases. Okay. So over the years, I've come up with an analogy that I feel is the best analogy to help somebody get the big picture of their entire financial life. And it's really simple. That analogy is climbing a mountain and it fits so perfectly with our conversation. When you climb a mountain, you essentially have three stages. You have the ascent, you have the summit, and then you have the descent, coming back down. Your financial life has these exact stages. The ascent is the accumulation phase. The accumulation phase is best defined as when you work, you have income, and then you save part of that income and invest it to create a nest egg. Sounds simple enough. Now imagine at the very top of the mountain, I draw a little flag. I stake the flag there at the top of that peak and I put an R inside of that flag and it stands for retirement. Not everybody has the same opinions and views on retirement, but there is a common theme, which is this. You're either going to stop working or you're going to work less and you're probably going to either stop saving or you're going to begin to save less. At that point in time, begins the descent, which in your financial life is the distribution phase. The distribution phase is where you replace either all or some of your income with income from your assets. Now, unfortunately, the financial services industry both starts and stops everything they do at the accumulation, the ascent phase. People get to the top and they have no distribution plan, no exit strategy nor have they been prepared for the complexities they will face coming down. And the analogy holds true, just as more people die coming down a mountain than going up, more people have financial ruin on this side of the mountain than when they're trying to accumulate. Can you relate to this? Do you know anybody that's experienced challenges during retirement? So, one of the things that makes me unique is that I do very little on the accumulation side because most of my clients are great at creating money for themselves or they have advisors that are doing it. My expertise looks at the end game first because just like climbing a mountain, you must take the tools with you on the way up that are required to get down. The IRS loves it when you're standing on the summit without these tools. This is where my knowledge and expertise comes to life. Let me show you. It's important to understand that there is a rate of return on each side of the mountain. Most people understand and have been taught what an accumulation rate of return is, but most people have not been taught about the importance of the distribution rate of return. The rate of return on the accumulation side, the easiest way to remember this one is it's a rate of return on your money. So I'll give you just a real simple example. If somebody has $100,000 and they have a 5% accumulation rate of return, it's 5% of the 100, which means they now have $105,000. Sadly, this is what financial planning has turned into. An advisor will say, hey, how much money do you have? Where is it? Oh, I can do better because I have better products with higher rates of return. Why don't you come over to me? And then the individual doesn't get the performance or they don't get the service that they want and the whole cycle starts all over they get referred to or meet somebody else and then that individual says well how much money do you have where is it oh i can do better than that why'd they put you in those come over here i even have higher rates of return and the cycle starts over and over and over the problem is there's so much more going on do you remember that i think it was fidelity had a commercial years ago on tv Uh, where people were walking around like Central Park and they had these big placards they were holding on to over their shoulder and, and they've got their number, right? Remember their ad said, what's your number? And supposedly that's their asset total at retirement. The problem is the dude holding his $2 million sign might very well have more income than the guy holding the $4 million sign because one doesn't have to deal with the IRS and the other one does. So let's talk about distribution rate of return. This one is no longer on your money. The best way to remember it is that it's of your money. I'll give you an example. Let's say that someone has accumulated $1 million. I'll just say for argument's sake that it's in a 401k. If they wanna turn that million dollars that's in the 401k into income for the rest of their life, they now need to be focused on the distribution rate. The accumulation rate is now really irrelevant. If you want to retire at normal retirement age, which is somewhere between 62 and 66, your industry standard distribution rate is about 3%. They call this calculation the Monte Carlo. Basically, it's the percentage of your money you're able to take out every year as income and ensure you don't run out of money before your life expectancy. I asked you questions about that earlier in this audio. If you ever are have been afraid, that you're gonna outlive your money or run out of money at some point during your retirement. So this Monte Carlo calculation is simply that. It's a percentage of your income to ensure your money lasts to life expectancy, and the going rate right now is about 3%. It's often referred to, though, as the 4% rule, and it started back in the late 80s. 4% is now considered way too aggressive. You can Google it. You'll find this to be true. So the financial service world is quoting about 3%. Now, it doesn't mean it's growing at 3%. What that means is you can take 3% of the $1 million every year, which is $30,000 as income, and that will last, and this is important, for two lives, both yours and the surviving spouse. You see, if you pass away in the middle of the descent phase, in in the middle of your distribution of money, This money has to continue to last for your spouse. Make sense? So distribution is more complicated than accumulation, but that's why I spend more time on it. There's actually more roadblocks here that a lot of people don't think about. You have taxes, you have Social Security, you have Medicare, you have distribution rates, you have legacy, which is what you want to leave to your family and or charity, and the importance of not outliving your money. This is why I do what I do. Now you might think I'm making this up, but in 15 years in this line of work, I've never met one person that had an exit strategy, and I don't blame them. I blame the traditional financial planning. By the end of this, you'll understand the exit strategy. Now, I believe it holds true, as I mentioned earlier, more people die coming down the mountain than they do going up. That's the way it is for Mount Everest. You can Google this statistic as well. For those people who die on the expedition of Mount Everest, 73% of them die in the descent phase. Meaning the moment they turn around, whether they made it to the top or not, the moment they turn around to begin the descent is the most deadliest part of the entire expedition. So that would beg the question, do you think they plan for the descent? Of course they do. It's the most important part of that entire expedition is the descent. So financially, we need to be in that same mindset. We need to have the tools. We need to have the strategies in place so that when we're coming down the mountain, we're not being decimated financially. So let's keep digging in. Chapter six, three types of money. Okay, so let's get back to the pie. The circle that I had you imagine that I drew that represented all of your assets, both current and future assets, and I asked you how much of it did you want to share with the IRS? Let's go back to that to that pie. There's three types of money that make up this pie. The first is accumulated money. That's defined as money that you've saved and are currently saving, pretty simple. Second, we have lifestyle money. This is the exact opposite of accumulated. Accumulated is saving money for tomorrow and lifestyle money is spending money today to enjoy whatever lifestyle you want. Now the goal is to eventually have enough in your accumulated pile that can fund your lifestyle, right? The third type is what I call transferred money. And this is defined as money that you're losing unknowingly and unnecessarily. A great example is what you told me earlier. You said that if you could, you'd want all of your assets exempt from the IRS, from taxes. If that were possible for you, but you didn't know it, and therefore incurred unnecessary taxes, then that would be a transfer of your wealth that did not have to happen. True? A second very common transfer is social security. Now here's an important question. Do you believe you'll get your social security benefits when it's time? Did you by chance say anything like, I doubt it, or probably not, or who knows, I'm not counting on it? Now think about those answers for a moment. You are admitting to a 100% tax. I mean, we threw tea in the Boston Harbor over 200 years ago for taxation without representation, and now we're just gonna shrug off 100% taxation with representation? Isn't that ridiculous? Remember how I believe they create obstacles to get in our way? Well, this one is huge. Would you agree that most likely only those people who don't have income or those with very low income will be the ones to get their Social Security? And that those with good income won't? Boy, I can't stress the importance of not only understanding this paragraph, but also answering those questions. Please don't just fly past this one. When I asked you, do you believe you're going to get your social security? If you said no, why? And typically it's because what I found is because people believe and they do that they make too much money. So therefore, it means that only those people who don't have income or whose income is very low are the ones who get it. True. So I'll admit this one bugs me and it bugs me a lot. You can't shrug off and opt out of the collection of Social Security taxes. It's funded with after-tax dollars and you're told you're gonna get it all back. So regardless of how successful you are, if you could get all of your Social Security during retirement that was promised to you, would you take it? If that were possible for you, but you weren't aware how to do it, then this would be another big example of an unnecessary transfer of your wealth. I mean, this one is huge, and I'll show you the impact in just a moment. So here's my big picture philosophy. I focus on the transferred money to relieve some pressure from the accumulation money in order to make sure the lifestyle happens at a high level if this were possible. Do you see how it could benefit you? I sure do, and I love this stuff. Let's keep digging in. Chapter seven, debt the four letter word, and how it relates to your 401k. Now let me give you another example of a wealth transfer and how this relates to the descent phase of planning. This one is easy to demonstrate. How do you feel about debt? There certainly is good debt, and there is bad debt. Now I'm gonna give you a hypothetical example of a bad debt, and I want you to tell me what you think of it, all right? You're in an emergency and you need $50,000, you need a loan. You have nothing in your financial pie here that can help you and the bank has already declined you as well. As a last resort, you come to me and you say, hey Kelly, I'm in an emergency and I have exhausted all possible avenues and I need to borrow $50,000 where you lend it to me. And I quietly say, yes, then proceed to write you a check. I add the word loan to the memo line and I slide it over the desk to you. Now before you cash my check, what two things do you want to know about it? I'm confident you said the terms and the interest rate. Great. Here are the terms. I say this. Look, man, I know you're struggling financially. The last thing I want to do is burden you right now with the monthly payment. Just take the money. There are no terms for now. Sounds good so far, right? Maybe. But then I say, here's the interest rate. One day down the road, at some point in the future, when you're back on your feet, I'm gonna want my money back. And based upon my needs at that future time, I get to determine then whatever interest rate I wanna charge you and make it retroactive to today. Now, how do you feel about that loan now? Horrible, right? What I just described was the worst possible debt imaginable. Debt that's payable at an unknown interest rate with unknown terms. All of which are controlled by me, the lender. Now believe it or not, I just described to a T the financial vehicle most Americans own and my guess is you do as well. Any guesses? What I just perfectly described was a 401k and an IRA. I used to have a mentor of mine that liked to say this phrase, Let that run past your brain real slow. I always like that phrase. I'll explain what I mean. Let's pretend you have a 401k with a $1 million balance and you bring the statement to me. My first question is always this. How much of this money is yours? What's the only answer you can give me? There's only one. The only answer you can give me is, I don't know. It's so important to understand this truth. Neither you nor I Nor any financial planner or tax expert on the planet knows how much of this $1 million is yours. Why? Because the government hasn't decided how much they want to take yet. You have a partner in this thing, and they've been riding all along with you the whole time. You getting this? At some point, you're going to want to take the money out of this account. So you ask your planner, how much should I take out this year? You might add this. Should I take out more this year because taxes are going up next year? Or should I take out less this year in case taxes go down next year and I could take out more then? What's the only answer your planner can give you? The same answer you gave earlier. I don't know. This right here is why traditional planning both starts and stops at accumulation. There is no distribution strategy. Not because they suck, but because it's impossible to effectively create one since no one can predict the future. This happens every year. Heck, not one single planner even knows what next year's taxes are going to be, let alone every single year of your entire life expectancy as you're coming down the mountain. Without any doubt, the government ensures they collect more in taxes than what you saved in taxes along the way. The only evidence you need is the fact that if you take this money out prior to age 59 and a half, they get to charge you an additional 10% tax, a penalty. So if you're deferring at the 25% tax bracket and take it out early, they get it at 35%. Do you really believe they have your best interest at heart above their own? Me neither. What's sad is the entire financial industry all of a sudden becomes no different than a waiter at a restaurant when they have clients in retirement with these types of accounts because all they can do is take an order. Well, Mr. Client, they say, I don't know. So how much income do you wanna take out to fund your lifestyle? Okay, I'll initiate the order. Here's something to consider. Again, I'm very confident earlier that if you were given a choice, you desire to have control of the knife and have your entire pie exempt from taxes. But yet this account, this unknown tax debt held against the 401k and or IRA actually hands the knife to the irs the worst part they get to use the highest tax rates in the entire code ordinary income tax to carve their slice which creates a major problem at the very least it represents something you have that you've admitted earlier you did not want and i have to agree with you how do you feel about that are you seeing it in a different light so you have three options with these types of accounts. What are referred to as the before-tax, tax-deferred accounts. Number one, you can continue to funnel your money into them, which I call the ever-increasing tax plan. Number two, you can flatten the tax using a certain provision in the tax code called a 72T, which allows you to withdraw money out of these accounts prior to age 59 and a half without incurring the 10% penalty. But there are, as you can imagine, some very particular components to the strategy but it is possible. Number three, you can get out and get out as fast as you can once you hit 59 and a half and have access to these funds because this is not where you want to be distributing money from over your retirement. Even though you're not retiring tomorrow, you have to begin with the end in mind. And so creating a distribution plan in conjunction with an accumulation plan is essential. And you'll see that here in a second. I promised I'd dig into taxes, Social Security, Medicare, and distribution rates. So let's do it. You ready? Chapter 8. How much will you share? Bucket number 1. Let's start with taxation. Now this is where you can make your first mistake because you don't want retirement income. You want cash flow and it makes all the difference in the world. When you're coming down the mountain, you're going to be faced with four different types of taxation. So imagine for a moment that I draw four different buckets all in a line. The very first bucket is titled bucket number one, ordinary income. The best example would be if you had income from a business, income from real estate, income from a 401k or an IRA, all of which is taxed as ordinary income. Let's say you had $80,000 of income from this bucket number one in your first year of retirement. The first thing you need to know is that the entire $80,000 is taxed. The second thing is it's taxed at the highest rates in the code, which is ordinary income rates. And third, you're gonna have to pay two entities, both the federal government and the state. California has a 13.3% state income tax on top of your federal income tax. Absolutely crazy. According to tax rates today, if they don't go up, which they will, the most the government can tax the $80,000 is $35,000, which leaves you with $45,000 to spend. Now this is where it takes an interesting turn, and this is eye-opening for people. The government has decided that if you have $80,000 of gross income in retirement coming from bucket number one, then you are rich beyond your wildest dreams, and therefore you don't deserve your Social Security. Remember. Getting back to the income game of what truly was successful, the top 25, 10, 5, 1%, and how it was, what, about 83% of the people make less than 75 grand. So if you show $80,000 of income, they consider you wealthy. They consider you rich, and you don't deserve your Social Security. So today, with an $80,000 of income, the government will tax 85% of your Social Security benefit, meaning they'll take 85% of the Social Security benefit and add it back to the top of your gross income distribution. Did you know that? When do people discover this fact? It's been my experience that they discover this when they're finally at the top of the mountain. So this is a form of means testing. The government says that you have other forms of income and don't need your Social Security, so they take it from you. I've already explained why this totally boils my blood. This is double taxation. We should be in revolt over this. Excuse the expression, but is it pissing you off yet? I'm sure it's making even more sense why I say I believe the IRS tries real hard to take the fun out of being successful. Here's one shining example. Now again, I'm confident you won't need your social security, but if you could get 100% of it back, would you take it? Damn straight. Well, let's see if bucket number two makes that happen for us. Chapter nine, how much will you share bucket number two? Bucket number two is called capital gains tax. This would come from selling a business, selling real estate, or selling your investments, your stocks, your bonds, your mutual funds that are not in a qualified plan. Now let's say you have $80,000 of income from bucket number two. The first difference between this and bucket number one is they don't tax the entire 80. They just tax your gain, hence the phrase capital gains. So to figure out how much gain you have on a distribution, your CPA or accountant is gonna ask you for a fancy term called cost basis. All that means is the difference between what you paid for the asset originally and its ending balance. So let's assume you doubled your investment in value over time. So, for example, you contributed $500,000, and over the years, it grew to $1 million. When you finally distribute the $80,000 of income from this asset, the IRS is going to subtract 50% of your distribution, $40,000, which you get to keep tax-free as your cost basis. The remaining $40,000 is considered the growth, and this is what you have to pay tax on. But the capital gains rate is lower than the ordinary income rate. It's about half, which is why some people refer to capital gains tax as the most advantageous tax we have. Now when I got in the business, the cap gains rate was 12%, then it went to 15 then to 20 then Obamacare added a 3.8% net income surcharge. During Obama's second State of the Union, he vowed to raise it to 28 before he left office. Fortunately, that did not happen. The point isn't to bash Obama, but to prove that capital gains is just another funnel of taxes that they can turn up or turn down as they wish. Again, they control the terms and they control the rates, what I call the knife. For the most part, people in our industry use a capital gains tax rate of 20%. So we're going to do that in this example. So you would pay $8,000 in tax on the $40,000 of gain, which leaves you with $32,000 of your gains that you can spend and live on. Since you got to keep your $40,000 of cost basis, you actually have $72,000 to spend. So your gross income was the same from buckets number one and and bucket number two of $80,000. But your spendable income after government was done was 60% higher in bucket number two. So it is more tax advantageous to be in bucket number two than bucket number one. But where do you think these people have their money? Bingo, most of them have it in bucket number one. It's typically about 100% of their money is in bucket number one. The government has done a great job of pushing people into these tax-deferred products. And as a matter of fact, most advisors recommend people max out their bucket number one before they even begin building their bucket number two. I honestly believe part of the reason is the fact that money in those accounts, in the bucket number one accounts, are trapped for years. I mean, you can't touch them without penalty until you're 59 and a half. It certainly helps create a long relationship with clients. There's another hidden benefit here, which is fascinating. Your 40,000 of cost basis actually stays back on your tax return in your Schedule D and it doesn't make it all the way to your 1040, which is page one. Only the $32,000 does and on the 1040 is where they do the Social Security calculation. So since there's only 32000 not 72000 the government doesn't tax 85% of your Social Security benefit anymore. They are also kind to tax 50% of the benefit with $32,000 of income. So even though your income was higher, you actually got to keep more of your Social Security. It's interesting, right? But it's still crap. Someone showing $32,000 of annual income still doesn't deserve all their social security? Are you kidding me? Does that annoy you? It, It drives me nuts. But please don't let this slip past you. In these two examples, with the same gross income distribution, the one with the higher spendable income actually got to keep more of his or her social security. Interesting, right? So is it possible to have an even higher spendable income and keep all of your social security. Well, let's keep reading, let's keep listening. Now, there is no right or wrong answer to this question. Do you believe taxes feel high or do they feel low? They feel high to me. They feel so high, I went and studied the history of the income tax. I actually have an ebook on this one. You'll find the history of the income tax. I would strongly recommend that you read or listen to that one. But I was curious, this is brutal. I'm getting killed, right? Here's what I found. The income tax started in 1913 and it started as a temporary tax. So the good news is it, it will go away one day. <laughs> At least that's what they say. What I was shocked to find out is I struggled to find a year where taxes were lower than they are today. I averaged the top tax bracket in every year since 1913, the average is 58.3%. I was shocked to find out taxes are historically low. There's only two periods in history where taxes were lower than they are today. 1988 to 1991 and in the 1920s. That's it. So here's the reality. Do I know how much taxes are going to be in the future? Of course not. I have no clue. Nobody does. But I do know one thing. They are going to go up. They have to because the problem is so big. Chapter 10. How much will you share? Bucket number three. Let's now look at the third bucket. Bucket number three. This is the tax-free bucket. There's only one example of this, and it's municipal bonds, often referred to as muni bonds. If you have $80,000 of interest from a double or triple tax-free muni bond, your tax bill is zero, and you actually are left with $80,000 to spend, which means we have another increase in income by moving over from bucket number two. And that's the sales pitch for these. Here's what's interesting. Even though this is tax-free, the $80,000 still goes on your return, why? so that the government can use it against you. Isn't that just awesome? So because you have $80,000 on the tax return, just like the 80,000 from bucket number one, the government's gonna tax 85% of your social security. And if you're married, you're gonna pay maybe $800 per month for your Medicare because you have other income. Interesting, right? So this still didn't accomplish what you claimed earlier you wanted. So let's keep going. Chapter 11, how much will you share? Bucket number four. All right, bucket number four. This is the tax exempt bucket. Let me first explain what I mean by tax exempt because there is a difference from tax-free. First, any distribution is tax-free just like bucket number three. So if you used $80,000 for income, you get to spend all 80. What makes this different is the distribution is not means tested for social security or any other benefits for that matter, why? because it doesn't hit your 1040. So this means regardless of your income level and regardless of the state you reside in, if you show nothing on your 1040, then there's nothing to means test and you'd be able to have 0% of your social security taxed, meaning you get all of it. Please make sure this sinks in because this is key. Remember earlier, a few chapters back, when you agreed that those who make very little to no money are the ones who get to keep Their social security. Hopefully a little light bulb just went off. Well, if you're showing nothing on your 1040, doesn't that mean you're one of those showing very little to no money? Plus, you'd pay about $100 a month for your Medicare instead of $800. And you'd qualify for any government cheese that exists. I have a client right now who is receiving over $420,000 per year in tax-exempt income, and he gets $1 hundred percent of his Social Security. He pays about hundred dollars for Medicare. He even qualifies for his state's EBT food stamp program. He doesn't do that though. He believes that's inappropriate, but he could get it. That's awesome, right? Wouldn't that be incredible? Would you like these results? I'll show you exactly how we did it for him. This is where I start to have a lot of fun in this conversation. It doesn't matter if I'm typing it out, if I'm on the phone, if I'm meeting with somebody, this is where it gets very interesting for me. So here we go. There are only two products in all of the tax code that fit into this bucket number four. First, the Roth IRA. Now what's interesting is the fact that a distribution from a Roth generates a 1099R. I've asked many CPAs why this is, and really none of them know. Now it's not because they're ill-informed, it's because there really isn't an answer. I believe it's an IRS earmark. So at some point they can apply Roth distributions to the capital gains bucket, in order to use it as a means testing for your social security. I mean that'd be real easy for them to do. For now it's tax exempt because it's a tax free distribution and it doesn't means test against your social security. But the government disqualifies successful people from this opportunity. If you make over 120,000 ish per year, then you begin to be phased out of being permitted to contribute money to the Roth IRA. I mean that's I find very interesting, it's fascinating to me. And I have a, I've got another ebook on the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA, Brother A and Brother B, make sure to dig into that. There's a reason the government pushes people into the pre-tax accounts and why they disqualify successful people in the post-tax. Make sure to watch that, but it's fascinating to me. So if you do qualify for a Roth, you can only put in just over five grand a year. That's not very much which means these accounts in distribution phase, in the descent phase of the mountain, will never really grow enough to be able to create many years of distribution. Make sense? So the government disqualifies you from the Roth because you're successful in order to push you into these other buckets. Please remember this one key point. Our politicians must follow tax code as well. They do not have their own tax code. With that said, the only other financial product The only one remaining according to all of the tax code, according to the 46,000 pages, the 26 feet of bookshelf space, is overfunded life insurance contracts. Biggest benefit in the code. Have you heard of it? The reason most people haven't heard a lot about or haven't researched it yet is because only 4% of all life insurance is actually overfunded. But who makes up that 4% is incredibly intriguing. First and foremost, it's banks. Banks have more of this than any other entity on the planet. As a matter of fact, they make up almost all of the 4%. Today, Bank of America, Just Bank of America, has over $27 billion in cash in their insurance reserves. Public record, by the way, it's line 41 on their assets and liabilities report provided through the FDIC.gov site. These values are referred to as their tier one capital. It's their tier one capital because of how they use it, and I'll show that in a moment. Next we have the government not the government itself but the politicians as an example i have a colleague that helped a current sitting senator set up an overfunded life insurance contract where he contributes $500,000 per year there's not a contract that costs $500,000 a year for him he is overfunding it to the tune of half a million dollars per year shoving cash in my biggest client in this arena overfunds a policy by $2 million per year and he falls into the last group the wealthiest Americans. History is riddled with successful and wealthy people who had and used life insurance. So what do banks, politicians, and the wealthiest Americans know how to do better than most people? They know how to plan for the dissent. They know how to plan for taxes and how to keep others off their money. So again, all of these products mentioned up to this point are great for accumulation. Businesses, real estate, investments, 401ks, IRAs, but we can't stop at accumulation. When it comes time for the distribution, we move money as far to the right. If bucket number one was on the left and bucket number four was on the right, we move the money as far as we can to the right because of the benefits coming down the mountain. Make sense? So we literally will do that. We will create bucket number four in such a way that it will allow for the transfer of funds from the other three when it's time to begin distribution. With my clients, I first take a look at the money they're currently forwarding to the various buckets and see if it makes sense to redirect any contributions and or balances. But just like climbing the mountain, it's not effective to figure this out when we finally get to the top. To do this right, we have to get this piece implemented early in order to have the ability to dump money into it later. An example would be a business owner who plans to sell their business. They need to create bucket number four years before they sell the business, not right when the sale is done. The IRS loves when people make that mistake. Look, this is a 108 year old tax code that nobody reads. This is important to grasp. And again, as I said earlier, it will change you and your family's lives forever once it connects and you start to see how it can impact your life. Let's keep going. Chapter 12, what I call the 10 minute lesson on life insurance. So let's do a quick lesson on overfunded insurance contracts to tie this together. And then I'll show you exactly how that client of mine is completely tax exempt with $420,000 of cash flow. It's my intention at the end of this conversation to ask you to spend some time on the phone with me because it's highly likely that what I'm about to show you within the tax code is something no one has ever shown you before. And since quality is never available at a discount, you need the right people helping you with this. So I'm gonna use an example of an actual client from earlier this week. Pretend again that I draw a large box and it represents, just a large rectangle, and it represents this guy's life insurance contract that he wants to buy. Now this life insurance contract has a death benefit of $2,800,836, and there's a reason behind that. There's a minimum, the bottom line, there's a minimum dollar amount it would cost him to buy this contract. Who determines the minimum? Who determines the smallest amount he'd have to pay for the $2.8 million policy other than himself? Because if it were up to him, he'd want it for free. So who determines this? Any guesses? It's the insurance company. See, the insurance company looks at his age, his sex, his habits, his hobbies, his blood, his urine, and they decide how much they're going to charge per month or annually in order to offer him this $2,800,836,000 life insurance policy. In this particular case, they determined that for $2,946.12 per year, he could have this protection. Now this is term insurance. Have you ever wondered how this works? I mean, economically, it can't. He'd give them $2,946 for the first year and then accidentally walk in front of a bus and his spouse would get $2.8 million. You can find studies that show that less than 2% of all term policies ever pay the death benefit, meaning the people don't die during the term. So over 98 cents of every dollar collected for a term policy is pure profit to the insurance company. But we need. Protection for wanting to protect our loved ones, etc. So there's definitely value in this for us. However, these policies are cash machines for insurance companies. Now, if there is a minimum premium that's advantageous to the life insurance company, there's also a maximum premium. So the top of that rectangular box. Did you know that? Did you know there was actually a maximum amount that this client could pay for this $2,800,836? policy here's what's interesting who determines the maximum it's not the insurance company and it's not him it's our government like I said before let that run past your brain real slow the US government sets the maximum now that causes me to pause and think about that fact for a moment because we know that they try to take the fun out of success Why would the government give this guy, give you and me, a limitation on what we can do with our capital? Pretty easy. Because they want to control our funds as much as possible and the corresponding taxes of those funds. You see, this maximum, the top of this box, wasn't always present. Prior to 1988, you could put as much as you wanted all at once in an insurance contract. Interesting. In 1988, with the Technical and Miscellaneous Revenue Act, often referred to as TAMRA, the government established a maximum dollar amount for each policy by making one big change to insurance contracts. They discontinued the ability to dump all of your money in at once and receive favorable tax treatment. So there's no more putting a million dollars in one time and still maintaining a tax-exempt status. Therefore, in order to receive the tax-exempt benefit, They said you must put money in, in the form of premiums, more than once, meaning more than one premium payment. However, they didn't specify how many payments. Interesting, isn't it? Now, why would they make this rule? There's many reasons, but here's one thing that often happened back then, prior to 1988. If Grandpa died and left a $200,000 tax-free life insurance death benefit to his son, his son could take the 200000 and dump all of it into a new insurance contract on himself, resulting in all of this 200000 being completely accessible and also completely tax-exempt. When the son died, he left an even bigger tax-free life insurance policy that's maybe worth half a million dollars, and his son would do the same thing. These monies were therefore never taxed, ever. This is how the Kennedys amassed so much wealth. Well, it's one way of what they did with their wealth. There's countless ways that someone could end up with a large sum of money and want to protect it. So in 1988, the government said you can't do that anymore. You have to spread this $200,000 out over time. If not, if you dump all of it at once, then we'll tax your life insurance monies just like an IRA. Remember how I said I believe the IRS tries real hard to take the fun out of being successful? Here's yet another example. Please note. They did not get rid of the tax benefits, not one bit. All they did was change how you can get the money into the contract. So now today, if the grandson in the previous example received a $500,000 tax-free death benefit upon, upon the death of his father, today if he wanted to put all of that into a new policy, he'd have to bleed it in there over time. He can't do it all at once like his father and grandfather could and still keep the IRS off of it. So here's how this works now. The insurance company will provide you a health rating and they will then run the math to see exactly how much money you can shove into the contract based upon the IRS's limitation. So as the example I've been giving of this recent client of mine, the insurance company approved him for the $2,800,836 of life insurance. He could buy it in the form of a term policy for only $2,946.12 per year, or he could overfund it to the tune of $120,000 per year. You see the strategy here, and this is where it kind of blows some people away. The strategy here is to buy the smallest amount of life insurance allowable by the IRS in order to get the most amount of your cash into the contract. We want to squeeze this corridor. Does this make sense? So that's what we did with this guy. He wanted to direct $120,000 of his annual cash flow into an overfunded insurance contract instead of the other buckets. So we took an application. He was under it they approved him. And based upon his health rating and the government's limitation, his $120,000 of annual premium would buy him $2,800,836 of life insurance as the minimum death benefit allowed in order to get all of his premium working inside the contract in order to make it overfunded with cash. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. Could you imagine the look on an insurance guy's face if he walked in and said, hey, man, I make a lot of money and I want to spend $120,000 per year in my life insurance premiums. And he'd be convinced he was about to sell a gigantic life insurance policy but that'd be a waste of the client's money since all of it would be going to the cost of the insurance and very little to any accumulation what would you think prior to reading this ebook if a friend of yours who you knew to be successful told you that he paid hundred and twenty thousand dollars per year for his life insurance how big of a death benefit would you think he had i'm pretty confident you would have thought it was huge millions of dollars in life insurance. What's fascinating to so many people when they finally see these types of illustrations is just how little it buys when you make it about the cash and maximize the government's limitations. This $120,000 per year only bought 2.8 million of life insurance, making it cash heavy, not insurance heavy. So this begs the question, if this client of mine could buy the $2.8 million worth of life insurance as a term policy and only pay about $2,900 per year, why in the world would he direct $120,000 per year for the same death benefit? Well, because he wanted a lot of money in his bucket number four for the distribution phase later in his life, but also because of all the benefits he'd receive on his cash while he climbed the mountain while he was ascending and accumulating. So let's explore those. Number one, he gets tax-free accumulation. On the way up the mountain, the accumulation phase, you don't pay taxes on the growth. Number two, on the way down the mountain, the distribution phase, you have tax-free distribution while you're living. You don't have to die to get this money. Number three, tax-free transfer to your spouse if something happens to you. Number four, There's no penalty to access your contributions prior to age 59 and a half. Now, do these first four seem kind of similar? Where have you seen these first four benefits? These four benefits are the same as a Roth IRA. Here's the history. Senator William Roth from Delaware wanted to come up with a Roth IRA and he simply copied the tax code for life insurance basically verbatim. Congress scratched about two-thirds of the benefits off the list and only gave him these four. Plus. not being means tested against the social security but they did add the 1099 r to track those distributions as we discussed for potential changes in the future but they went a step further and said we're going to limit people to 5500 per year and if they make too much money they can't put money in at all and that's what we know today as the roth ira here's something to consider why does the government allow me as a self-employed individual to contribute 53,000 dollars a year into a sep ira but zero into a Roth because of my income. Well, follow the math. They know they're going to need to get taxes from wealthy people, the people that actually save and put money away. Therefore, they don't allow wealthy people to contribute to a Roth, but they encourage us to put 53 grand a year into a SEP IRA. Crazy. Benefit number five. Now, what other benefits do these policies have that you don't get with a Roth? Well. There is no penalty to access your gains before the age of 59 and a half. This is a big one. Number six, you have a tax-free death benefit. Ross don't have a death benefit. Number seven, there is no 1099. There is no communication between the IRS and the insurance companies whether money's going in or out of the account. So a proper distribution doesn't hit your 1040, which means it's not only tax-free, but it's also tax-exempt. Number eight. This means that there is no social security means testing. Number nine, money in bucket number four is also not subject to creditors. Interestingly enough, O.J. Simpson had a lot of his money in life insurance contracts and was able to uh, avoid paying the Nicole Brown family after he lost the civil case. So there's creditor protection, which is far more important than one may think. And another reason why wealthy people, the banks, and our politicians shove capital into these accounts. But it's important to note that the amount of credit protection is based upon the state of residency and 33 states have 100% protection. Benefit number 10. Money inside this contract is not subject to the alternative minimum tax. If that tax has ever been assessed to your tax return, you'll know that it's the most egregious tax there is and it's very, very painful. This is not subject to the AMT. Benefit number 11. It definitely has a competitive rate of return when you consider the strength of the distribution. Typically a standard investment account has to perform over 10% annual returns every year after fees just to compete against these types of accounts. Number 12, the policy has guarantees. A typical investment cannot guarantee anything. If they were required to illustrate any guaranteed performance, they'd have to show zeros, not insurance, you cannot lose your money. Benefit number 13, you also have a provision called waiver of premium. If you should become disabled, the insurance company will waive up to $20,000 a month of your contributions, your premiums, which depending upon your age or your health may or may not be available to you. This makes it a self-completing asset if you are unable to work. Could you imagine the press an IRA would get If somehow your annual contributions would continue to be made so that you continued to grow the asset if you were disabled, everybody would sign up for it. But this happens every day with properly designed insurance policies. You do not lose the ability to continue to grow your asset. Benefit number 14, chronic and terminal illness provisions. If it's determined that you are terminally ill, you can access a large percentage of your death benefit prior to your death to be used for anything you want take a final trip splurge on your family use it for a surgery that's not covered by insurance whatever benefit number 15 next you have no market risk and this is significant money inside an overfunded life insurance contract is not subject to any type of market risk no stock market risk I mean during the coronavirus outbreak I've yet to have one client call me my clients do not lose money ever People that have been overfunding their life insurance contracts with these companies have received growth every year without missing one year for the last hundred years. Benefit number 16. Guaranteed loan provisions. No questions asked. This is a completely private transaction. Why would you take a loan against your values? I'll go into that in a moment. Benefit number 17. You have unlimited contributions. So what if the guy that I referenced before doing $120,000 a year ended up having the ability to do $200,000 into a policy after he started his original one? Well, what we would do is we would direct an additional $80,000 into a second policy. This could be on his life or on his wife. Benefit number 18. These policies and their values fall under contract law, not tax law. Man, this is so huge. This is why I only use mutual insurance companies because the policyholder is an owner of the company, therefore creating contract law provisions. These things are as strong as ever and not susceptible to the political pendulum swings like the other buckets. And finally, benefit 19. Lastly, you can use money inside your overfunded life insurance contract as collateral. This last one is key. It's the critical component to how you not only use these monies while you're accumulating, but also later on in the distribution phase. It's a concept I call collateral capacity. And it's why banks hold billions and billions of dollars in these contracts. Let me show you what I mean exactly. Chapter 13, the debtor, the saver, and the wealth creator. Pretend for a moment that I draw a line across a piece of paper. This is the financial zero line. I'm going to put a little zero on the left side of that line where it starts. You must remember that we finance every single thing we buy. So imagine I draw a straight line down and then I stair step it back up a little off to the right until I get back up to the line. This is who I call the debtor. He wants something bad enough that he'll go into debt for it and then make payments just to get back to zero, and then he starts it all over again. So he borrows money again, then he slowly makes payments back up to zero, and then he does it again. So maybe he's getting a loan for his car. So again, he wants something bad enough that he'll go into debt for it and then make payments to get back to zero. Now the saver does the same thing, but instead delays the gratification until he or she has enough saved up, then pays cash, to get back to zero. So now imagine on top of that line you got someone who stares, steps up off to the right and then they pay cash they drop back to zero and then they save up for you know another car and then they pay cash drop back to zero. So this individual then saves cash pays cash. Notice they both get to the same place. They both get to financial zero. The debtor paid interest and the saver lost interest because he or she depleted their account. Mathematical, these two are identical. Now, within this model is the third type, one who has collateral capacity, what I call the wealth creator. Here's why. Their money never stops compounding, even if they use it. So imagine I draw a slow curve that starts on the bottom left of that line and slowly curves up to the right. You see, if this individual wants to buy what what the other two bought, then they simply put a loan against their assets. They use it as collateral and then they pay off the loan. Just like the saver built her bank account back up and just how the debtor paid off his debt, it's the exact same thing with the exact same outflow. Only the wealth creator never lost the ability to earn interest on their money. This is exactly what banks do. If you and I were partners on a huge construction project, let's say we're going to build a $100 million golf course in Florida and we went to the bank, would they loan us the money using the funds from their depositors? No way. They leverage their billions of dollars in their insurance contracts. So they'd borrow the $100 million from the insurance company and the insurance company would charge them maybe something like 4.5%. Then they'd charge us 7 to 8% and you and I would pay off the loan. But what happened to the bank's money? It never got off the compound interest curve. It never stopped earning. It was just simply used as collateral. Real estate's no different. If your home was free and clear right now, no mortgage, and you decided to put a mortgage against it, would the value change on your house? Of course not. The loan against the house has no bearing on the value of the house itself. This is the same way with an insurance contract. Chapter 14, Leveraging Cash Flow So here's how this works once we decide to use the cash flow during retirement. This is the part I love about what I do. Again, I believe you deserve the opportunity to get what you want, which was stated earlier, to control the knife and have your assets positioned in such a way that when it's time to finally use those assets, you are completely exempt from both federal and state income taxes, regardless of the income level and regardless of the state you reside in. And here's exactly how you do it. We climbed the mountain properly and ensured we had the proper tools. In this case, we insured you had a large amount of capital in your overfunded insurance bucket. The year we decide to use it for income, we take a loan against it. Loans are not a taxable event. They don't hit your 1040. Could you imagine if loans ever became taxable? I mean, holy crap, that'd be a huge disaster. If you took a mortgage loan and it counted as income to you, loans are not taxable. This is a loan, therefore it's completely tax-free, and doesn't have a place to go on your tax return, which means you have zero means testing for your Social Security and other benefits. This small loan collateralized by the balance of the entire bucket of your entire overfunded insurance contract does have a small interest expense, but our full value is still earning, so this loan would never catch up. It's an arbitrage play. The next year we do the same thing, and so on and so on, all the while the entire balance is still earning we collateralized our retirement spend down. There's an additional benefit to this that I I, I didn't cover before. Because this is a collateral strategy, the amount we get out each year is higher than if we were just depleting an investment account. Insurance contracts can yield about a 6% safe withdrawal rate. So if this had a balance of a million dollars, we would receive about $60,000 of tax exempt income each year. Now, let's step aside from this for a moment and compare that to a traditional investment account that we'd have to have a much larger balance to compete against this. So look, let's pretend we did not do the overfunded insurance contract and we decided to direct our money to some other investment account. Now, if this account also grew to a million dollars and we decided to begin using it for income, the withdrawal rate is about 3%. Remember that? Not 6%. So you generate about $30,000 of taxable income, why? Well, for a few reasons. This is at risk, so it could lose. It has to last for both lives of you and your spouse, as we discussed earlier. If you die halfway down the mountain, this money has to last, it has to last on for both of you. But it also has a depleting strategy instead of a collateral strategy. You see, if you withdrew money for your income, then the account balance shrinks, which affects the interest you can earn just like the cash buyer. Then the next year, if you do it again, the account shrinks again. In the financial industry, the safe withdrawal rate, as it's called, is considered to be 3% because it's a safe number to ensure the money lasts for both lives and that you don't run out of money either. What happens over here in bucket number four if you die halfway down? So now let's get back to if we had the money in our overfunded insurance contract. If you die halfway down the mountain, what does your spouse get? That's right. They get the Tax-Free Death Benefit. This bucket has to last for only one life, not two. Overfunded insurance contracts create the most cash flow due to these variables. Collateral distribution giving us a higher distribution rate instead of a depleting strategy, and it's tax exempt, and it only requires us to calculate it for one life. So it begs the question, How much money would the other investment account have to grow in order to create the same $60,000 of spendable income as well as adjust for the hit to our Social Security? Well, let's just solve for the $60,000. dollars we take $60,000 and divide it by 3%, which equals $2 million, after fees. Our investment account has to outperform the insurance contract by more than double. It's crazy. But what if taxes go up? This thing needs to do even better. I run this number every time for everyone. And when you consider all the variables and the complexities of the spin down, normally the investment account has to get about 95 to 12% every single year without ever incurring a loss after fees to compete against the insurance contract. Truly, it's just math. And this is why traditional planning both starts and stops at accumulation and why in 14 years I've never had one person sit across from me who had a detailed exit strategy in place prior to sitting down with me chapter 15 the next steps so here's what we look to do to solve this and tie everything together i first want to have an understanding of your buckets i refer to this as old money and new money old money is how much you already have in each of these four buckets what are your balances new money is that which you are adding to these either monthly or annually and that you plan to do so going forward as well as any future amounts like inheritances or the divestment from real estate or businesses. Then we want to keep our focus on the pie from the beginning and how much of it you wanted to have exempt from the IRS. Can we get you what you want or can we better balance it out like a teeter-totter? At the very least we want this balanced, where our three buckets and our insurance bucket can actually put us in a position to navigate down the mountain strategically. You see, We only want buckets number one, two, and three to be the primary source of income during retirement if tax laws and rates are extremely favorable. If they are, then maybe we'll take a bit more out in distribution and let the insurance bucket cook a little longer, or vice versa. But we always have the ability to ensure we're pulling out an income level from these buckets that won't trigger a tax or a means test on our benefits. Also we want the assets in the other buckets to do great, to kick butt, go get a big return, kill it. Build your business, invest in your business, find a great investment planner to create solid returns. However, we just wanna make sure you have a place to put those rewards when it's time to use them for income later. So how we do this is simple. We may have to use some of the funds available in these accounts, the old money, and some of your new money for a few years in order to establish the fourth bucket. Then we stop and we wait until it's time in order to take the proceeds from these others and move them strategically over. I've mentioned my client that has a $420,000 dollars tax exempt cash flow this is exactly how we did it for him about eight years ago in preparation for today he was a surgeon he wisely bought the three-story medical building where he office and he rented out the other office spaces he had a junior partner who was planning to buy the practice as well as the building this was our client's primary retirement funding so what did we do did we wait until he sold the practice and then began his descent down the mountain of course not the irs would love That strategy for him. Eight years ago, we directed some of his new money and some of his old money to start a $1 million per year premium into his overfunded insurance. After three years, we stopped. This meant that from year four to year seven, he didn't contribute another dollar into the insurance. By doing this, he created a void to the tune of a million dollars per year, so approximately $4 million total, year four, five, six, and seven, that he could then fill up with the future proceeds from the sale of his practice and the sale of his building. When he sold those two, he incurred a capital gains tax on them, which he paid once, and then he had a placeholder to fill this insurance policy up with about $4 million of his profits from the sale. This left him with a far more balanced position. Imagine a balanced teeter-totter. You can't have all your assets on one side. That's a really boring game to play by yourself you need to provide some tax-exempt pressure on the other to balance it out. He has more left over in buckets number one, some old 401ks and some IRAs. He has some in his capital gains bucket, bucket number two from the sale of his business and the real estate, and he has about seven million in his insurance contract. This policy will generate about $420,000 of tax-exempt income for him without even touching these other accounts. If he does use those other buckets, He can use them at a level that keeps him in the lowest tax bracket or below and make sure that he doesn't take too much out of those to trigger the social security means testing. He even qualifies for food stamps. Again, he doesn't do it because he believes that's an abuse, but he gladly accepts 100% of his social security. That is the concept. And I wanna emphasize, it's the tax code, not the product that affords us all these benefits and gives us the privilege of building wealth in such a way where our retirement distribution is completely exempt from both federal and state income taxes, regardless of the income level and regardless of the state that we reside in. This product is just the funding mechanism for maximizing the efficiency of the tax code. If it accomplishes what it is you claimed you wanted, which was being in control of the knife, then who cares what the product is called? So that's what I'd like to uncover with you. And in order to really discover those things, We have to kind of run two parallel tracks because not everybody can have this. This is life insurance. You can't need it when you buy it. In other words, you can't be sick. So we've got to make sure you're healthy and that comes with the signing of an application for the insurance. It doesn't commit you to anything. Also, we have to schedule a paramed nurse to come to your house, stick you with the needle and get a blood sample, a urine specimen and make sure you're healthy. And while the insurance company is evaluating you, We want to look at your finances to see how big of a life insurance bucket we need to build for you according to what you want to do. See, you don't need this. Insurance is not a need product, it's a want product. I can't tell you how much you need. I can only look at what you want to do. It's all according to what you want to do. You tell us how much is in each bucket, how much you want in bucket number four, and we'll design it for you. I'm sure you have questions, so that's why I make my personal calendar available to you. Now normally I charge $500 for an appointment, but if you've gotten this far, I want to give something in return. I really appreciate you digging in. And if you're looking to work together, then here's what I need you to do, and here's what I'm gonna offer you. Go to www.financialcaffeineinsider.com and fill out my application. There's gonna be a, a box to where you can enter in a code and enter in the word insider. And what that will do is that'll give you a $500 credit so it's not gonna charge you anything and I'll be able to look over your application and see if there's an opportunity for us to discuss your situation now my calendar does fill up fast and I can't guarantee that this offer will last so don't wait and get over there right now again the domain is www.financialcaffeineinsider.com and sign up and use the code insider to save you that $500 I look forward to hearing from you now real quick I want to briefly Detail the additional ebooks I have available for you and these dig into more individual topics But you'll be able to find these one is on mortgages and I call it the most misunderstood American dream That one is I believe very important because after all there's what other assets do we place? hundreds of thousands of dollars in liens against and borrow against those kind of assets so that the mortgage discussion is very important again as I title it the most misunderstood American dream the second is, as I've referenced uh, in this ebook already, the IRA versus the Roth IRA, Brother A versus Brother B, which is pre tax versus post tax, and the math behind it and why the government is more interested in Brother A, the pre tax. Very important to understand. There is uh, a third one to SEP IRA or not to SEP IRA. That one's fairly similar to the Brother A versus Brother B, but uh, I think you'll like it. The fourth is the income tax history and the future of taxes according to our own government. Um, using their um, table s4 proposed budget by category number five the 12 percent myth now this one was in response um, i worked very closely with a financial author she's quite famous she sent me an article asking me to counter the article and it was dave ramsey saying the the 12 percent reality and she was like how do you answer this And I initially made a video for her regarding this, and then I decided to put it on my YouTube page, and it's become my number one video. But you get the audio book of that, that I call the 12% myth, and it's the math behind it. That one, there's a lot of mathematical factors that need to be understood about the accumulation rate of return. The next audio book is how to maximize, not max out, but how to maximize your 401k. The next is the three secrets to reducing the cost of college, and this one's a shocker. I detail how I paid, what, like $3,200 a year for a $28,000 university, and my kid was just above average. I've taught this for many years. I've traveled around the state of Colorado teaching uh, all the charter schools uh, these strategies. I even created a business, College Money Academy, that does this. But there are how you can implement the strategies of negotiation into reducing the cost of college it'll it'll shock you so if you have a kiddo uh, in high school strongly recommend you check that one out and finally the three strategies to pay for college cash is not the best so if you think of the recent chapter in here of the debtor the saver and the wealth creator obviously if you can pay for college as a wealth creator then uh, that's the most advantageous way now these may not be available immediately but uh, over time here i'm going to be getting these things done so uh, look forward to having all these at your fingertips